you know, yesterday I got together with my older sister and she asked me if I had any cravings for anything to eat. And immediately I said, I wanted Chinese food. That's all I wanted. Uh, I know that seems like such a baffling choice for you. You know, living in this land of plenty that is San Francisco. But I didn't tell you that Torrance, the city where my church is and the city where I live, is a barren wasteland of Chinese food. It is not great. Um, you know, there are a couple of restaurants that we, you know, they're okay. You will get it every now and then. I'm just so happy because, you know, a man who is dying of thirst will drink anything, right? And so I'll try that mediocre Chinese food. I'll be so happy. And I remember one time I came up here and I went to, uh, is it Hong Kong Express on Geary, right? And I don't even know if you guys think that place is good. For me, it was mind blowing. And I remember feeling angry, angry that there was nothing like that anywhere close to where I live in Southern California. But for you guys, it is just so ubiquitous. The worship team and I were talking about this. You can walk out the door, point a finger in a random direction, and within 50 feet, there's some awesome Chinese food place. And for some of you, you're just so used to it. And even though it is a good thing, it just becomes old and familiar. This happens with a lot of things. Things that are so familiar to us that they become too familiar and old and stayed. Even spiritual things. And I want to suggest to you this morning that there's something that is so ubiquitous and, and so familiar and so commonplace to us as Christians that it runs the risk of being something that we are overly familiar with. And that is the gospel itself. Maybe even the word gospel. For a church like Sunset, the word gospel is probably part of the air that you breathe. Or you hear it in every sermon. It's in your mission statement as a church. Right, Nine times out of 10 in your community groups, if you answer the question with the gospel, you're probably like most of the way there. If we're playing family feud with the words you'd most likely hear in a sermon here, gospel would be at the top of the list. And it can feel so constant and so ubiquitous that we kind of sort of roll our eyes at it. Right? Not outwardly, obviously, we're too godly and mature for that, but inwardly. And we can smell the gospel coming in a sermon a million miles away. We see it coming and we start to tune out a little bit. And we can't help but wonder, yeah, okay, I know, I know it's important. I know the gospel is good. I know it's important, but I've kind of heard this already. Can we talk about something else? Have you moved away from being gospel-centered to being a gospel cynic? Does the gospel feel less and less like good news and maybe more and more like meh news? Now, before we get too down on ourselves, we can take a little bit of comfort in reminding ourselves that we are not the first people to feel this way. The Apostle Peter, who wrote the words that was read for us earlier in the service, he also once rolled his eyes at the mention of the cross. He also scoffed at the mention of the cross. He also was in a hurry to move on from it to wonder if there's anything else that you could talk about. There's a story in Matthew 16 where Jesus tells his disciples that he eventually is going to go to the cross, he's going to suffer, and he's going to die. And Peter, right, Peter not exactly known for his careful, well-thought-out speech, right? He takes Jesus aside and he says, Far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen to you. He is in absolute disgust and disbelief of the idea that Jesus would go to the cross and die. He's repulsed by the idea of the cross. He can't imagine this happening to Jesus. But fast forward 30 years later, and Peter writes the epistle of 1 Peter. And over the course of those 30 years, Peter has been transformed. He no longer rejects the cross, but he rejoices in the cross. 
The cross in Peter's life becomes the lens through which he sees all of life. He writes the book of 1 Peter to suffering Christians who were scattered throughout ancient Asia Minor. And at that point in history, the Roman Emperor Nero had risen to power. He had enacted the first period of federal persecution against Christians. Christians were targeted as opposing worship of Roman gods and were therefore guilty of crimes that were punishable by death. Christians literally did not know if any given day was going to be their last. And Peter was reminding them that while they live on this earth, they are elect exiles. We are sojourners headed towards an eternal home. But as long as we are here, we are on a mission to proclaim Christ to a dying world. And Peter is really honest in his letter about what it is that we have to look forward to as we live out this identity as elect exiles, that we are going to face suffering. We're going to face persecution. We're going to face injustice. We're going to face rejection. And Peter's call for all of us is to endure all of it with patience and joy, with steadfastness, grace, and mercy. I don't know a lot of you here, but I do know that every person here has come into this service with their own unique story of suffering. They may have been things that you've had to endure for the entirety of your life. It may have been something as difficult as your kids just not listening to you as well as you wanted to this morning and you had a hard time getting to church on time. And everywhere in between, injustices at work, difficulty with friends, painful relationships with your in-laws. What suffering is it that God has placed into your life? And what would it take for you respond the way that Peter is calling you to with, with perseverance and steadfastness and graciousness and joy and hope. Where it, how could that possible response, how could that response possibly be a, a reality in our lives? And Peter's answer again and again in this letter is the gospel. Far from rolling his eyes at the gospel, he turns his eyes again and again and again to the cross and looks to it as the means and method for you living faithfully as an elect exile in this world. And so we come to our passage this morning and once again, Peter is returning to the gospel as the foundation for all of life. The passage was read for us, but I'd like to just read it again with a little bit of context just to kind of get a run up to it. And we'll look be looking mostly at verses 24 to 25. But starting at verse 21, Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So here, Peter is saying that Jesus is our example in the midst of our suffering. Jesus died, as Peter put in verse 21, to leave you an example that you might follow in his steps. And the word example is such a cool word. It was used to describe the pattern of letters of the alphabet that children would trace over to practice their writing. You remember those, right? With the two solid lines and the dotted line in the middle, right? And there's these perforated kind of shapes of the letters and you would have to, you know, draw over it in order to learn your handwriting. 
one commentator says this. He says, English words such as example, model, or pattern are too weak. For Jesus' suffering is not simply an example or a pattern or model, as if one of many. He is the paradigm by which Christians write large the letters of his gospel in their lives. You're meant to take the course of your life and trace it over the dotted line of the cross. In some measure, if you want to follow Jesus, your life must be cruciform, meaning it must be cross-shaped, following the example of Christ. So I think that's a fairly uncontroversial thing to say. Right? Even the world generally believes that Jesus was a good guy. Right? Most people would think that being like Jesus is a pretty good thing to aspire to. But the Christian life is not, okay, here's a good guy, and here's a bunch of good stuff he did, so you should just go out and do that stuff too. Now, the Christian life is about looking to a sinless, perfect substitute who changes you, not because of anything you have done, but because of what he has already done for us. And in verses 24 and 25, what Peter's going to tell us is not just that the cross is this example to follow, but that the cross has accomplished something for us and in us that changes everything about us. So not only is our life cruciform, it is also cruciformed. It is shaped like the cross because we have been transformed by that cross. So that's what we're going to look at in our passage. Three realities of a cruciform and a cruciformed life. Three realities of a cruciform and a cruciformed life. And the first reality is that our sins are paid for. Our sins are paid for. Look again at verse 24. Peter writes, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. At first blush, you could just skim right over those words. They seem so familiar to us. But you'd be missing out on all the treasures in this simple verse. It is such a simple statement. But all the meaning in the world is packed into these tiny little words. He himself bore our sins. This is the essence of the cross. This is the heartbeat of the Christian faith. The cross is where Jesus became our substitute. He took our place and he took our sins on himself. Right, that word bore has a sense of carrying or lifting up. It brings the picture uh, to mind a picture of someone carrying a heavy load. And what is it that Jesus carries? What is it that he bears? It is our sins. He himself bore our sins. In other words, Jesus took the massive weight of our sin and he put it on his back and he carried it on the cross. And this is no small thing because our sins are no small thing. I have a niece who, when she was probably about three or four years old, um, this is not Kaylee, so don't have to worry about this Kaylee. Um, and then, yeah, and I was, you know, talking to her and getting to hang out with her and, and I was going to try to share the gospel with her, you know, and what a joy, right, to be able to, to minister the gospel to the young people in our lives, even at that age. And so I'm trying to figure out how to do this and I'm trying to explain to her who God is, that God is our creator. He made us, he made us to live for him. And the sad reality is that we're all sinners, We've all broken God's law. We've all turned away from God and tried to live life on our own way. And I tell this to my niece and trying to explain what sin is. And I ask her, so what do you think? Do you think you're a sinner? 
And she looks at me and she says, sometimes I make mistakes, but sometimes I'm right. Sometimes I make mistakes and sometimes I'm right. I think sometimes we may not say it exactly the same way my niece said it, but I think honestly, we believe that sometimes this is us. Sometimes I make mistakes. That's all sin is. It's just a mistake. Everyone makes mistakes. It's not that big of a deal. In fact, you know, my mistakes aren't nearly as bad as someone else's mistakes. And most of the time, I don't think I make that many mistakes. But that's not the way the Bible talks about our sin. Sin is not merely a mistake. It is treason against the king of the universe. It is looking at the only source of life and satisfaction, the one for whom you were made, turning away from him and trying to find your joy and satisfaction in anything else. It is not merely a mistake. It is a rejection of the God and creator and sustainer that you were made for. Sometimes I make mistakes, but even if I do, sometimes I'm right. Right, okay, I make mistakes, I goof up every now and then, but I'm not bad all the time. I'm certainly not as bad as that guy over there. On the sliding scale, they're good and bad. I think I'm doing pretty well. But again, this is not seeing the seriousness of our sin. Because God's standard is perfection. There's no amount of right that we could ever do to make it right between us and God. One sin, one false step before a holy God is enough to condemn us forever. In order to feel the weight of this passage, we need to feel the weight of our sin. Are you aware of the immeasurable load of your guilt before God? Do you see your anger and your lust, and your discontentment, and your materialism, your selfishness, your enslavement to the opinion of others, your addiction, your bondage to work. And do you feel the weight of that upon your soul? What is left for us, for those of us who bear the impossible burden of our sin? There are two options. The first option is that we bear our sin ourselves. And subsequently, we bear the punishment for our sins. And that would be fair. That would be justice. The weight of our sin should cause us to sink into the depths of God's wrath in an eternity in hell forever. That's what we deserve. That is one option in how one, our, our sins can be borne. But there's another option that someone else bears our sin for us. He himself bore our sins. It's so emphatic in the original language. He himself bore our sins. I think what Peter's trying to do is he's, he's emphasizing Jesus so much. He himself, because Peter's blown away at the fact that that's who the sin bearer is. It's Jesus, the sinless son of God. The only person who never rejected the Father, never sinned against God or anybody else, the only person who was completely free from sin, bore our sins. For as you read through this passage, some of you may recognize some of the language in it. That Peter is quoting the Old Testament prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 53. 700 years before Peter wrote this letter, God spoke to Isaiah about a suffering servant who would suffer in the place of God's people. And Isaiah prophesied 700 years before he, the suffering servant, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And that suffering servant, Peter's saying, was Jesus himself. Jesus was the suffering servant who bore the sins of the world. Jesus was the suffering servant who paid for your sin and mine. But not only did he bear our sins in his body, the passage says he did it on the tree. Did you notice that little phrase at the end of that sentence? He bore our sins on the tree, in his body on the tree. Depending on what translation you're reading, it might say on the cross. But the word that's, he, that's translated here is not the usual word for cross. It's a different word that usually just means tree or wood. So I think that the ESV gets it right here. And what Peter is doing is he's calling back to an Old Testament passage in Deuteronomy chapter 21. And I won't go into it and describe it all. But what it describes is those who were condemned by God, those who faced the wrath of God. And it says that those who were hung on a tree were cursed by God. To be hung on a tree was more than just physical punishment. There was divine punishment that came with being hung on a tree. The one who was hung on the tree was cursed by God. Right, and this is different from some kind of like, you know, voodoo curse you might see in the movie. It's more the sense that God's condemnation and God's judgment rested and fell upon that person and their sin. The crime committed by the hanged person was so heinous and so foul to God that he was cursed by God. The very wrath and anger of God rested on that individual and he faced the judgment of God himself. Because of our sins, we were under a curse. Our sins were so offensive and, and wrong to God that we justly deserve punishment from him. Because we have offended an eternally holy God and we have committed eternally heinous crimes against him, that warrants an eternally dire punishment. Hell itself. That was our curse. And so when Peter says that Jesus bore our sins in his body on a tree, he's saying so much more than that he was suspended from a couple pieces of wood. He was saying that Jesus became a curse for you. The curse that you deserved fell on Jesus instead. When he hung on that cross, God the Father saw that Jesus bore all the sins that you and I would ever commit, all the sins that were so heinous and foul, and Jesus became the object of God's wrath and anger in our place. Galatians 3.13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Beloved, this is old news for some of you. But is it good news for you? 
Does it still feel like good news? Do you remember the burden of your sin? Do you remember the immeasurable load of guilt and shame that you had before God because of your sin? Do you remember what it was like to feel the freedom of knowing that because of Jesus' death for you, that as God looks at you this morning, he is not angry with you. He is delighted in you and cares for you deeply and longs for you to be part of his family. You are not a mistake. There are no takes back when it comes to your entrance into the family of God because Jesus became a curse for you. He bore his sins in his body on the tree for you. This is good news. And this morning, do you come weary and heavy laden? Do you come even this morning feeling the impossible load of your guilt of sin, even from this week? I hope you feel the relief of what Peter is promising here. Do you feel the freedom that Jesus has paid it all and he bore your sins away? So that was the first reality. Our sins are paid for. The second reality of a cruciform and a cruciformed life is that our lives are transformed. Our lives are transformed. Let's keep reading in our passage. He himself bore our sins on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus' death paid for our sins, but he says there's a purpose to it, to transform the way we live now. When Peter says that we might die to sin, he's saying he's trying to highlight the fact that our old relationship with sin has been severed because of the cross. Your old sinful self is dead. And now you live because of the cross. You live to righteousness. Now, we're not perfect this side of eternity. We're still going to struggle with sin until glory. But we are not once, we are not who we once were. We are a new creation. And because of the cross, and only because of the cross, you have been transformed so you can now lead a life that is pleasing to God. Our culture is obsessed with self-improvement and self-help and self-care. A year ago, the U.S. self-improvement market spent $11 billion. And it's estimated that that number will hit $14 billion by 2025. Right? We want improvement in so many areas of life. Right? Our health, our finances, our time management, the health of our skin, our parenting, our cooking, our gaming, our social skills, our career path. So what do we do? We read blog articles, we click Facebook links, we watch Instagram stories, we follow TikTok celebrities, we listen to podcasts, we watch TED Talks, we deep dive into Reddit threads, we follow, we adopt productivity systems, all in service of seeing our lives change just a little bit for the better. But Peter's argument is that in order for true change, true transformation to take place, we have to first turn to the cross. The cross must be the fountainhead that flows downstream into every area of life. Now, it's so important to get the order right here. In love, Jesus pays for our sin, and then he changes us. It's not that we change first so that Jesus loves us. No, any transformation, any change that happens in your life is only because of the undeserved work of Jesus. 
right? So experiencing change in our marriages, in our anxiety, in our anger, in our lust, in our addictions, it doesn't start with us deciding one day we're just going to pull ourselves together and figure it out. No, it starts with looking at the cross and seeing the finished work of Jesus and his example there. This is such a massive topic, but even in the passage that we just read in the surrounding in the surrounding context, it is so clear. Peter's um, his understanding of the cross and how we live as Christians is so closely intertwined that he can't help but give instructions on how to live the Christian life in immensely practical, down-to-earth, everyday ways without mentioning the cross. So this passage that we read is actually smack dab in the middle of a bunch of instructions on practical living. And so if you have your Bible in 1 Peter 2, just kind of skim around. And then right before it, a couple of verses before, which the, Peter tells us that the cross transforms our citizenship. Look back at verse 13. Peter says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every institution, whether it be the emperor supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. In other words, because of the cross, as Christians, we are called to submit ourselves to the government, to follow the law, to honor and obey its leaders. And then this takes on a whole new meaning when we consider who Peter's writing to and when he's writing. He's writing to suffering Christians who are being actively persecuted by the government. If you were a Christian, the government just might be the instrument used to cut off your head. The Roman Emperor Nero was a psychopath, and he would use corpses of Christians to light his garden so he could take evening strolls. And yet Peter is telling his readers, and he's telling us, no matter how badly the government treats you, no matter how much you might suffer for righteousness at their hands, submit to the government and continue to do good. Now what about that statement feels hard for you? What are the friction points in your own heart that would make obeying that command difficult? And you see how the gospel reduces that friction. I just think, how is it that Jesus related to the government? Who was it that oversaw the greatest injustice that has ever been committed in the history of the world, the death of Jesus? Who oversaw the process of the crucifixion? It was the government. And Jesus' willingness to go to the cross is where Peter gets this idea to be subject to every institution. The cross itself is a reminder for us to be transformed in how we relate to the government, submitting to it even when it fails us. Or what about the workplace? Maybe you feel frustrated by your job, frustrated by your boss, an employer who is unfair, incompetent, Maybe you don't always feel like you get what you deserve. Maybe you feel like you've been mistreated or neglected in some way in the workplace. And Peter says that the cross transforms how you live and serve faithfully in unfair work situations. Look at verse 18 in chapter 2. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. What Peter's saying is if you're slacking off at work and you're just a bad employee and you're getting heat for it at your job, then you're kind of getting what you deserve. 
But if you're faithful and diligent and loving and gracious and representing Christ in your work and you still get beaten up for it, guess what? You are tracing your life over the dotted line of the cross. You are following in Jesus' footsteps on the road of Calvary. And God looks at that and says that the fact that you get to model the graciousness of your Savior is grace. It is a gracious thing in the sight of our God. The following passage, right after our passage in verse 26, Peter is going to give instructions to husbands and wives. Right For those of you who are married, do you see how the cross transforms your marriage? The world tells us that marriage is a 50-50 proposition. Right? You meet me halfway, I'll meet you halfway, and we'll kind of work it out, we'll compromise. But the gospel gives us a completely different paradigm. If we are to love our spouses the way that Christ loved us, then we are not meeting them halfway. Because Jesus did not meet us halfway. Jesus endured all of our sin, all of our our, our failings and our shortcomings, and he loved us even still. He completely laid aside his own life for us, for our good. The cross transforms our marriages because it calls us to daily laying aside our preferences and desires and comforts for the good of our spouse. There's so much more that can be said about how the gospel transforms our lives, but something that we say frequently in our church is, is that the gospel is not just good news for eternal life, but it is good news for everyday life. The gospel is not just your ticket into heaven. It is the, the way that we are to live out everyday life at work, at home, at school, in our relationships. So our lives are transformed by the work of Jesus on the cross. And the final reality is that our care is secured. Our care is secured. That's what we see in verse 25. By his wounds, we are healed. For we were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter, once again, is reaching back into Isaiah chapter 53, and he grabs this great illustration. You were straying like sheep. And this is a great picture. It's a great picture because sheep are super dumb. Sheep are super, super dumb. Um, one of the movies that I loved watching as a kid growing up was the movie Babe. You guys remember that movie, right? And at the risk of spoiling a movie that at this point is like 30 years old, I'm going to kind of walk you through the epic tale that is Babe, right? And so Babe is this pig and finds himself living in a farm with all kind of manner of farm animals and decides that his greatest desire in life is to be a sheepdog, okay? He gets adopted by a sheepdog mom and sees the job she does, that's pretty dope. I'm going to do that, right? And so they kind of, he goes through this, you know, you know, hero's journey, right, of like pig escapades. And eventually he finally gets to uh, the final climactic moment where he gets to compete in the sheep herding competition. And again, if, if I'm spoiling this movie for you and that is troubling you in some way, I apologize, but Jesus bore my sins too. And, and so we get to this moment and this, the sheep need to get herded and babe goes out there and, and wouldn't you know it, this pig is amazing at herding these sheep. And not only that, these sheep are amazing actors. And so the sheep are like lying by, lying two by two, like on their way up to the ark, just like winding their way through this field in total unison. And I'm watching this as a kid thinking, what kind of witchcraft is this? Like what kind of, like I, that's the job I want. I want to be able to have, be some kind of like animal wizard and have this kind of control over all kind of the animal kingdom, only to find out 
that the way that they filmed that scene was they built animatronic sheep. Just dozens of animatronic sheep because in order to make this elaborate path through this field led by this pig, right? And the reason why they needed to make animatronic sheep was again, because sheep are super dumb. Like there's just no hope at all that any sheep would be able to follow those instructions. Sheep are some of the most helpless, hopeless animals on the face of the planet. They are impossible to, it's impossible for them to live on their own. A straying or a lost sheep is helpless and hopeless. There is no hope for a lost sheep to care for itself. And that's what we are. We are all sheeple. We are lost sheep, helpless and hopeless. And in our sin and in our insistence that we live a life apart from God, we were wandering sheep. But Jesus came to rescue us and find us. And because of the cross, we have now been returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Where these two words are almost synonymous, shepherd and overseer. And what could be better for lost sheep than a shepherd? The shepherd was responsible for caring for sheep. And because of the aforementioned dumbness, sheep need a lot of care. The shepherd was to tenderly provide for the needs of his flock and protect them from danger, lead them to food and water and shelter. And isn't that exactly the, the description of what God has done for you? God is the one who cares for us. He loves us, poor, dumb, lost sheep. Right? That is exactly the same kind of picture that we find in Psalm 23, that famous depiction of, of God being our shepherd. You know this passage, right? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. God will provide for my every need. When God is my shepherd, I will want for nothing. Every deficit will be resolved. But there's, that's a truth that runs contrary to everything around us. Because billions are spent every year in advertising to try to convince you that you shall want. That you need something else. That there's something else in life that won't, it, it, things won't be right until you have what someone else is selling to you. But if we haven't returned to the shepherd of our souls, then we will want for nothing. Each person here is a testament to the care of God. But can you see that? Can you see the ways that God has cared for you? In what ways has God met your needs? Big ways and small ways. A job, a friend, an education, an apartment, a meal, a word of encouragement at the right time, a green light on the way to work down 19th Avenue, a church family that knows you and cares for you. Can you see God's care for you? But beyond just our physical needs, Jesus is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Where he doesn't just care for our lives on the outside. He's deeply concerned about your soul, your inner life. Do you see that The way that God cares uh, for you is not just about the things that are happening on the outside of who you are, but the circumstances he has led you to, good, hard, bad, and everything in between, they're all meant to be part of the way he's caring for your inward soul, for the inner part of your being. Do you see the connection for how he provides for you physically and how he's providing for you spiritually? For those of you who are single, God is not just keeping you in a holding pattern until something better comes along. God cares for you. And God has you in the season 
because he cares for you. And he has gifted you the season to love him and love others in a unique way. For those of you who are married, God didn't just provide you a spouse so you can have company in a tax break. God in his care for you has given you a spouse so you can have someone who will help you see your Savior better. To help you see needs that you didn't know you had and to cause you to grow in Christ-likeness. For those of you with jobs, God didn't just provide you with a paycheck. No, God is caring for your soul by giving you an opportunity to show the world by how you use your resources that God is your greatest treasure and not your 401k. For those of you who are in school, God is not just giving you an education. He's giving you an opportunity to learn about the world that he's created and worship him for because he cares for you. The cross secures God's care for you. Do you see that? Do you see all the details and the gentle leading of the shepherd of your souls? So our sins are paid for, our lives are transformed, and our care is secured, all because of one thing, and it is the cross. Maybe you're like Peter in Matthew chapter 16. Maybe you're just not that excited about the cross. Or maybe you even came here this morning, and you're actually pretty hostile towards the cross. And you don't understand what the big fuss is about the Christian faith. But my hope and my desire is that you would be more like Peter here in this passage when he is a person that has been completely transformed by the cross. According to Christian tradition, Peter's relationship with the cross was more than just theoretical. It was experiential. Peter would go on to write one more epistle, the book of 2 Peter. And shortly after that, Peter was arrested and he was sentenced to death by crucifixion. But apparently he objected to it, not because he feared the pain or the suffering, but because he did not count himself worthy enough to die in the same manner as a savior. So instead, according to Christian tradition, he insisted that he be crucified, hanging upside down. Now, what was happening in those moments? That Peter understood what it meant to live a cruciform and a cruciformed life. Jesus' death had paid for his sins. It had transformed his life. And even in the worst example of suffering and persecution, he was confident that his shepherd loved him and he was in his care. He took up his cross and he followed Jesus down that Calvary road. He traced his life even in his final moments over the dotted line of the cross. And may that be the reality here at Sunset Church. May this church always be a place filled with cruciform and cruciformed lives. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I know that there are many here who have been walking with you for longer than I've been alive and for whom the gospel is old news, familiar news. And yet I pray, Father, that as this word has been unpacked and unfolded, that we would have felt a fresh, just fresh rain from the gospel, that it might fill the reservoirs of our hearts. And that for those of us who may have been experiencing somewhat of a gospel drought, that we have been restored and seen once again the great treasure of knowing that our sins are paid for. God, I pray for those here who are struggling with any number of different moments of suffering. And I pray, Father, that more than just looking to get through it, that they would look to the cross, 
and see that as the way that they can aspire to be faithful, knowing that you will transform them and change their hearts. God, I pray that you will continue to provide for this church's needs, that the Sunset Church will continue to entrust itself to the shepherd and overseer of their souls. And however you would lead them, would they be confident in knowing that wherever their shepherd is taking them, it is a good pasture. God, we want for nothing, and we're so thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.